Welcome to Objections to Objectivism, the podcast that examines the critiques and problems with Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism from a moderate point of view. This is episode three on the problems with rational self-interest. I'm Patrick Shalopsky. I'm neither an objectivist nor an anti-objectivist, but I appreciate some aspects of the philosophy. I'm far from an expert on objectivism. I'm learning more about it. Please join me in doing so. There are many who have studied objectivism far more than me, so please send your feedback in to objections to objectivism at gmail.com. That's objections to objectivism at gmail.com. We have some of that feedback. I have here a response from a listener, Eric, who runs the Objectivism for Intellectuals website. I invite you to check out his website. Eric says, You said that for Rand, the non-aggression principle is the basis of all her ethics. This is most definitely not the case. The non-initiation of forts principle is basic to Ayn Rand's politics, not her ethics. Her ethics starts with an analysis of values, life and human nature. The most basic normative principle is that life is the standard of value. So thanks, Eric, for this comment. I have to concede this point. I think that the idea that the non-aggression principle is the basis of all our ethics was in an article I read. I don't remember where. And I wrote it down in my notes. And then I kept coming back to it when I was forming this episode. So I'm sorry about that. I think you're right. And I do agree that there's more to the basis of her ethics than the non-initiation of force principle. But I got to say, I think it's not just politics. It does apply to her ethics. And must be beyond politics because there's so many ethical consequences of that. It's, it's basically an ethical principle itself. And um, I think the things that I said in episode two are still true. The content there still stands. But I agree that it's not... Episode two is more of a critique of the non-initiation of force principle. But there may be aspects of Ayn Rand's ethics that still are able to stand and that could be related to other principles. So I'm, I'm happy to, to grant that one. Um, but I think the more substantive argument that Eric mentioned uh, was this, quote, you're treating the non-initiation of force principle as an out-of-context commandment. Principles in objectivism are not like religious commandments. Non-axiomatic principles are contextual. That is, they have certain specific conditions of application. In this way, they are like the principles of physics formulated by Newton and Einstein. All right, so this is a great objection to my objections, and uh, let's go into it a little bit. So they're not like religious commandments. They're more like laws of nature. They're more like the way things are, right? That's what Eric is saying. And thinking about that, they can't entirely be like laws of nature. I'm thinking that morals always at least have some kind of commandment or some edict that is binding in some way. Um, look, I'm using the language of the religious commandments, right? To as an analogy, I don't, I don't say that they come from God necessarily or for, from some other source. Um, but they call for us to adjust the way we make choices, right? There would be no moral imperative if the only problem with breaking the moral law was to suffer the automatic logical consequences that are dictated by the laws of nature. Um, for example, there are many situations where I might exert force or fraud on another for my benefit without much risk of any consequence. But objectivism says this is a moral violation, right? So 
if I do not regard this kind of prohibition of aggression as binding on me, if objectivism simply informs me that my choice is irrational rather than evil, is this kind of objectivism really a morality at all? If there is no ought to teaching that binds my behavior, but it only gives me an understanding of what is rational, is this even an ethical teaching? Um, to understand and attempt to follow the concepts of a certain philosophy is a choice. It's a choice that I have to make. It's a choice as much as attempting to follow the Ten Commandments. So it seems to be that the principles of objectivism would imply some commandments at least, right? It, it might do more than that, but at least it would imply some kind of moral code. Even if uh, the whole of the principles of objectivism is much more than just that moral code, just those commandments, it is at least those commandments, or at least some kind of, of commandments, some kind of moral teaching on how to live and how to make choices. And it seems to me that the non-initiation of force principle is such a code, right? So then what about this part? Uh, there was a context. There are certain specific conditions of application. Okay, let's go with that. So can this moral code, if it can indeed be called one, be, have a context? So what good is a statement of moral absoluteness if it depends on a context to be binding? It seems to me that the, moral, the context of a moral claim has to be in the moral claim itself, right? And I can't go too far with this, right? So it would go to ridiculous extremes, like where you would imagine the most absurd scenario that could upset or um, throw off a moral teaching, and therefore you have to throw out the entire moral teaching. I, I'm not saying that. Well, let me take this example and see if this is, is this an absurd situation or does this test the moral code? For example, I'm going to say that it is generally morally wrong to steal, but I have to equivocate. There are situations, like I explored in the last podcast, imagine I'm in a desperate situation and I need a small bit of another's abundant food supply to survive. For example, when the owner isn't around, I'm just going to take some of his food. I can't ask him because he's not here, but I need it and I'm desperate and it's an emergency situation. I'm tentatively claiming right now that it's morally acceptable to steal the food and eat it, perhaps seeking to thank or repay the owner someday. I want to explore the merit to this position further in a future podcast because I think there's some interesting other thoughts there. But for now, I bring it up because Rand addresses these so-called lifeboat scenarios dismissively. She says that her philosophy is for ordinary civilization, not for the extraordinary emergency. And this doesn't sit well with me. If I can justify violating morals when in extraordinary peril, why not when in other situations that I deem extraordinary enough to warrant it? Is it really that dependent on context? Why can't I define my own irrational whims as allowable within the context that I choose? So I'm thinking these morals have to be binding in some sense. If they're not binding in the extreme situations, why can't I just explain them away in maybe unusual but not so extreme situations, non-emergency situations that we run into? Um, the moral dilemmas of our day are not not in the simple cut-and-dry everyday things. They're in unusual things to us, right? But those are the times when we most need a moral code to guide us, to help us make those decisions. 
And finally, if the morals are not binding in the extreme situations, if the morals of objectivism, that is, why are the principles of objectivism so absolute and extreme themselves? I'm not sure on this one. So perhaps sometime I can hash this out better in a two-way conversation with someone knowledgeable. For me right now, it's hard to defend the non-aggression principle as foundational, but only within certain contexts, unless we define those contexts and refine the principle with more nuance. Let's turn to in the news. So this week in podcast time, the push by the Republican establishment to reform the Affordable Care Act failed. So for many, it's as good as chance as any to do some Ayn Rand bashing, right? It has seemingly become fashionable to invoke the name of Ayn Rand dripping with disdain when attacking your political opponents. I hear the mention of objectivism crop up randomly. Here's two clips regarding the Affordable Care Act replacement this week. First, Representative John Yarmuth, Democrat from Kentucky, was on CNBC on March 22, 2017. You know, it, it's, it represents one of the greatest transfers of wealth in history, uh, almost $2 trillion, $900 billion in, in tax cuts, and $880 billion in cuts to Medicaid. Uh, so it, it just goes in the wrong direction. And, but, you know, my characterization of it is it's not really a health care bill. This is an ideological exercise to basically satisfy uh, Paul Ryan's uh, Ayn Rand tendencies. Did you catch that in there? Catch that little Ayn Rand reference? All right, here's another one from Joy Reid, MSNBC commentator on her own show uh, on March 26th. We saw with Paul Ryan, and the most devastating thing was that he's willing to be, he can be rolled. You know, look at what he was willing to compromise in this. Taking away eyeglasses from children mm-hmm. was one of the things he was willing to do in order to try and get this passed. But isn't that, I disagree with you that he was rolled on that, because Paul Ryan's ideology, this sort of Ayn Randian ideology, suggests to me that that's something he was fine with doing to get this tax cut. So I've heard this pattern a few times now. Other shows, too, do it. Other commentators, whether it's radio, TV, Uh, articles on blogs they have disdain for republicans and they bring up that oh it's all about ayn rand isn't that terrible and then they move on as if as if the name of ayn rand alone should cause us to uh, realize that they're wrong and bad and of course there's no explanation of what ayn rand believed there's no careful analysis there's not time for that right And even if there were time for that, it's unlikely that these commentators really have understood Ayn Rand's philosophy or wrestled with it. It's totally unclear that they even understand it themselves, much less their audience. What percentage of Joy Reid's viewers know much at all about Ayn Rand? They hear Joy Reid say the name, and they just attribute evil to it, and and that's enough for them. It's a hit-and-run, quick little snipe attack, and they're done, and then they move on to something else. Um, it's really a, a poor excuse for analysis, a poor excuse for commentary, and really another reason why you probably shouldn't even pay attention to these cable news shows. All right, let's turn to our main question. All under the heading of, Is rational self-interest sufficient as a basis for morals? Or as a basis for anything? Well, first, let's look at this. What does Rand mean by rational self-interest? For Ayn Rand, my understanding is, concern with one's own interest doesn't mean the values produced by the desires, emotions, the aspirations, the feelings, the whims, or the needs of irrational brutes. That's a quote from The Virtue of Selfishness. Here's another one. 
Rand says there is a fundamental moral difference between a man who sees his self-interest in production and a man who sees it in robbery. The evil of a robber does not lie in the fact that he pursues his own interests, but in what he regards as his own interest. Not in the fact that he pursues his values, but in what he chose to value. Not in the fact that he wants to live, but in the fact that he wants to live on a subhuman level. Hey, this sounds pretty good to me so far. All right, let's keep going. From the same book, Rand says, Man's independent judgment is the means by which one must choose one's action. But it is not a moral criterion, nor a moral validation of one's actions. Ah, so our own judgment isn't good enough to help us decide what to do. So this is a little different than what the critics of objectivism might say. So for Rand, that which is rationally implied from life, from existence, from identity, that is what is consistent with life, survival, and flourishing, is what is the basis of a rational self-interest. And as I think of these things, I, can, I keep coming back to that word rational as Rand's word for good or righteous. It's a good self-interest to act in accordance with life, survival, and flourishing. So out of that, Rand has these virtues, reason, purpose, self-esteem. Those are the top three values of objectivism. And out of those flow further virtues, rationality, independence, integrity, pride, honesty, justice, and productiveness. Rand even claims that the rational interests of men do not clash, that there is no conflict of interests among men who do not desire the unearned, who do not make sacrifices nor accept them, who deal with one another as traitors, giving value for value. That's also from the virtue of selfishness. So, okay, we've got an idea of what she means by self-interest. It's a rational self-interest. How do I decide what is rational? Is our rational self-interest often obvious? So let us suppose, agreeing with Rand, that in any moral dilemma, there is a rational self-interested choice and an irrational one. They're both self-interested, but one's rational and one's irrational. No doubt Rand would have us figure out what is rational for ourselves. So presumably I already hold consistent rational values, um, valuing rationality, independence, integrity, pride, honesty, justice, and productiveness, right? So from that, I should be able to judge my own self-interest as to whether it's rational. In order for me to take any action, I must decide what the rational choice is then. Rand wants me to have this system of values and principles that lead me to decide rationally. I agree. But the idea of rational self-interest isn't enough, it strikes me, to inform these values and principles. So suppose I agree with Rand that honesty is always, or almost always, a good idea. Is it wrong to lie in order to save the canonical Jews hidden in my house against certain, certain forcible evil by the Nazis who are looking for them? Maybe Rand would call this the, uh, the emergency scenario, the lifeboat scenario that really shouldn't be a test of our ethics. But really there's any number of scenarios that fall short of that extreme example, right? So what about if I were to lie to save myself from the forcible collection of United States income taxes by the IRS, right? That's not an emergency scenario. That's literally the scenario that everyone in the United States has to deal with. Should we lie to avoid taxation? That seems wrong in itself, right? That, that's a lie, but yet it's a lie that's 
in my self-interest and it would be rational to avoid taxes. And if maybe I believe that all taxation is the initiation of force and therefore immoral, so why can't I say that it's rational to lie to save myself from the taxation? So that, that seems absurd in the other direction, an everyday situation that maybe it's in our rational self-interest to cheat on our taxes. That's uh, not good enough to overcome honesty. But yet I could rationalize that, right? And we even use that word, rationalize. I, I figure out a way to claim that it's rational in, our, in my own mind. The objectivist would say, well, that's not objective, that's subjective, right? But how else am I to decide except in my subjective thoughts and analysis, questioning my own beliefs, and eventually I might come up with a belief that's perhaps irrational, objectively, but I have to decide what is irrational. So how can I do that except by subjectively? And how can I do that consistent with the values if I've got all these contexts that might change how I apply the values. All right, let's keep going. Is rational self-interest enforceable or is it at all self-enforcing, right? So what's the difference between the ideal man, such as Howard Rourke or John Galt or Dagny Taggart? What's the difference between that man and the evil dictator, the criminal, um, Nietzsche's Ubermensch, right? So this is, Rand goes to great lengths to say that Yes, this this it, it, Rand goes to great lengths to say this is not what she's looking at. She doesn't want an ubermensch. She doesn't want someone whose own capricious whim takes over and they can defend it because it's in their self-interest, because it's not rational. Um, another example is Dostoevsky's Rodion in Crime and Punishment. So for those of you who haven't read Dostoevsky, it's probably most of you, um, Rodion in Crime and Punishment exercises irrational, cruel self-interest. Rodion's a very complicated person. He is very highly intelligent, and he, he explains away in his own mind and justifies the killing of a pawnbroker, of a merchant. Dostoevsky gives us Rodion as an example of the man who acts in his self-interest, believes it to be rational, but Rand, of course, would say that Rodion is irrational, that he has committed a murder out of desires and feelings that are inconsistent with life. The major theme of crime and punishment, though, is, is that humans act in ways they believe are rational all the time, but in fact, they are immoral and pathological. So in Crime and Punishment, Rodion believed that murdering the pawnbroker was rational and right. Did he forget an aspect of objectivism that could have led him to choose otherwise? So what, what would the objectivist morality and rationality, even if Rodion believed in it, do to stop him? How could this philosophy guide him into a more moral action? Isn't morality only useful and therefore consistent with life and survival if it has the power to override someone's irrational self-interest? I'm saying there's no way to check or balance my own beliefs about my own self-interest in and of myself. I could certainly consider the opinion of others as a check, but Rand's novels have all manner of characters who defer to others' judgment and thus become willing slaves or otherwise pathetic, self-denigrating individuals who Rand clearly wants us to avoid emulating. So where's the check and balance on my own self-interest? How do I make it more rational other than just trying? There's got to be more than that to morality. Let's take another idea here. Rand's ideal government exists only to protect all from the initiation of force 
and to punish those who initiate force, that is, to punish criminals. So most of morality is unenforceable by others, others, right? It doesn't rise to the level of criminality. It doesn't rise to the level of those who initiate force. Those who initiate force can be prosecuted, but none of the other behaviors or situations that lead to irrational self-interest can be touched by the government or by anyone else. So since government can't enforce it, since others in society can't enforce it, and since it's very difficult, if not impossible, for me to enforce it or to at least be informed so that I can choose to self-enforce it, what good is this morality if it's not restraining me at all? So maybe, maybe it's not so much an idea of, of restraining or enforcing morality. Maybe it's just a, uh, the idea of persuading people, of, of influencing people with this philosophy, of imbuing them with these virtues so that they would act in their own rational self-interest. So that's great, right? We can certainly have a philosophy that doesn't enforce good, but rather just informs us as to what good is. But is our own rational self-interest at all persuasive in that way? Can we read, read Ayn Rand and then be persuaded by our own self-interest to change our evil ways? Can our rational self-interest change the hearts of evil men or at least lead them into less evil? So let's think about this. So when do evil men, or let's not even say evil men, it could be any man prone to evil, any person who makes poor choices consistently, who doesn't act in the rational self-interest. What sociologically do we know causes people to make better choices? To Where I used to choose evil, now I'm going to choose good. Well, there's many, many things. I, I would submit here are, the, here are some, right? When, when I seriously consider the threat of punishment, I'm more likely to choose to avoid the thing that's going to cause me punishment. So I can choose a virtuous act instead of an evil act because I don't want to be punished by the government. Objectivism and rational self-interest doesn't, doesn't help with that one, right? It, it, only in the case when I'm enacting force against others would it help because the government would punish me. But other than that, what is there to punish me? What is the negative consequence that I want to avoid? Also, I make better choices when I'm more educated. If I have more education, more knowledge, more wisdom, I can, I tend to find better ways to achieve what I want. There are many other psychological benefits to education. I won't go into them all, but in short, the educated make better choices, make um, less evil choices than the uneducated. Hopefully, studying objectivism makes me more educated, so that's great, but I don't think that's quite what Rand was getting at. Uh, I make better choices when I'm monitored or otherwise held accountable by others with authority, right? So not necessarily punishment, but just knowing that what I do will be questioned and observed by others helps me to make better choices, or at least the choices that those others want me to make. And related to that is when I become part of a community that expects and enforces good behavior and stigmatizes bad behavior, um, even if it's not really punishment, but just uh, social norms, can be a big part of me choosing better choices or avoiding evil, at least the evil in the eyes of that community. I make better choices. I choose less evil when, when I'm aware that I'm able to achieve my ambitions without resorting to crime. Some people do commit crimes because it want, helps them achieve what they want to achieve. I make better choices when I see my potential victims as people with dignity rather than when I dehumanize them as others and animals. Hopefully, objectivism helps us to see other people as actual people with dignity 
that have rights themselves. So that maybe, maybe objectivism helps a little bit there. I make better choices when toxins or other mind-altering health problems are removed. I remember a study that showed that when lead was removed from gasoline, crime went down, and they believed they could find a, a very significant statistical correlation between the removal of lead from gasoline and the amount of crime that happened in society That's in the subsequent years. So if you believe that or any other example... As I become more clearer-headed, as my health problems are removed, I'll make better choices. I make better choices when the virtues become my own paramount values. So Rand's virtues of independence, integrity, pride, honesty, justice, this could certainly help us to, be, to make better choices and become less evil. But what does rational self-interest do to encourage these values? Rand seems to derive these values from rational self-interest. But most people don't. That's why I think objectivism is such a novel thing to many who have never encountered it, never wrestled with it before. How are most people, how am I even, to become convinced in these virtues, become convicted that these virtues are hugely important only through self-interest? It seems that I need more than that to motivate me to these virtues. I'll wrap up here with a question that encircles all these questions, right? Is rational self-interest a robust enough standard to be truly objective or sufficient to guide us? If we're looking for guidance from morality, and the morality is be rational, but then do what you want, as long as it's rational and consistent with life, I don't know that that's going to give us enough guidance. I remember reading Atlas Shrugged and considering the various characters. John Galt seemed to have it all figured out, but Dagny Taggart perhaps needed to learn some of these things as she go, as she went. At the beginning, she was acting in her own rational self-interest. But there was so much more to the situation that she couldn't see. And there was so much more to what should motivate her that she learned throughout the book. And it wasn't always through rational self-interest that she did so. There were lots of interactions with others that brought about this learning on Dagny's part. And so it was with Hank Reardon, with Francisco, with Ragnar. It strikes me that even Ayn Rand gave us examples of those who needed more than rational self-interest to figure out what was right to do in different scenarios. And indeed, these people who were, in theory, working from only their rational self-interest seemed to do many things that were immoral as a result. And I kind of accepted that as, yes, it's hard. People figure out as they go. And when I read more of the plainer teachings of Ayn Rand in her nonfiction books and from those who defend objectivism, it seems like the self-interest is, is all at the core and it's almost all we need. There's got to be more to it than that. It's not sufficient to guide us. And maybe it's not intended to be. So if you have an idea of where I should go from here on what under objectivism should guide us beyond mere self-interest, let me know and we'll maybe explore that in a future podcast. So all in all, I do like the concept of rational self-interest. The more I learn about what Ayn Rand thinks of when she says rational, the more it says to me this is her definition of good. This is her way of saying this is good, righteous, honorable self-interest. I don't think simplifying it to rational, at least in the English sense of that term, is going to be good enough. If the word rational really ends up as a code word for 
Ayn Rand's definition of what good self-interest is, and then you further have to define good self-interest, the usefulness of that term rational self-interest will be diminished in my eyes, right? The word rational has to tell us something. It can't just be a code word for good that we have to further explain and set up in a objectivist framework, redefining the word to fit Rand's philosophy. I don't think I want to do that. And if she did that unintentionally or, or she did that partially, great, let's explore that and I'd be interested to hear more. So thank you for listening. Please send in your feedback to objections to objectivism at gmail.com.